0: You are Locked On Bucks, your daily Milwaukee Bucks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day.
1: Welcome to Locked On Bucks. I'm Eric Name. Joining me as always is my good friend Frank Madden. We are recording at halftime of Rockets Spurs, or at least trying to because Frank has some. No, I don't even know what your allegiance allegiances. I don't know how to describe your Rockets allegiances. Um, are they? Like- they're, obli-
0: they're 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 obli- I would say they're obligations. I mean, my wife is from Houston. She's a big Rockets fan, and I mean, the Rockets are fun to watch, right? I mean, they're. It's not like they're.
1: Yeah.
0: Like a hard. T- I, I I feel like the thing that people complain most about the Rockets, like people who don't like how James Harden draws fouls, and I just don't really find that to be like a compelling reason to you know, go against my wife in <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, so, so no, um, I, I am the Rockets are my second team and uh, which is ironic cause I hated the Rockets in the nineties cause I, I was a, a Dave Robinson fan and I hated Olajuwon and the Rockets. So um, the tables have turned now I'm running against the Spurs and for the Rockets, but um, but they're, they're an interesting team to watch of course cause you know um, they, they are Obviously, play a very different style than the Bucks, at least offensively. As I was gonna say, they're antithetical to the Bucks offensively. Pretty much, pretty much, pretty much couldn't be more different. Defensively, maybe they do some similar things, but, um, but yeah. So, so I still have at least some some vested interest. Although my wife's been getting so stressed out watching games that on Friday she would just stop the DVR and to like de-stress, she would watch her other like. She basically, her, her two favorite things to watch are NBA basketball and uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, I'm not sure how familiar people are. They were they actually had to joke about this on SNL this week. So it was basically my wife flipping back between NBA basketball and uh, a drag drag show, um, trying to de-stress. So it's, it's some, some weird TV viewing times in, in our household. <laughs>
1: Um, all right. Yeah, that does sound like some weird TV viewing, Frank. Um, (laughs) I don't even have like a comment for it. Uh, so we're going to blow on right by that. Um, so I I guess we are officially in the off season now. We are officially discussing off season things. And I think Tony Snell and Greg Monroe are kind of at the forefront there. Um, and we're going to get to that shortly, but, um, there was just a quick note on, I believe it would have been Thursday, uh, Maybe Friday, which, whichever day John Hammond spoke to the press. I think that's Thursday. Um, where about an hour before that, Mark Stein, man, it's weird not to say of ESPN, um, but Mark Stein. I think
0: I think he's still I think he's still technically with ESPN, maybe through like the draft or something. Because I was looking at it today because I know Chad Ford's there through the draft, and I think Stein might be as well or something because he's he's also still has like ESPN, ESPN Stein line yeah. yeah, and it's it still says ESPN stuff on his. Twitter. So either he's not letting go or he's still technically associated. I don't know. But yeah, weird, weird times.
1: Yeah. Strange stuff. But either way, he reported that among the possible candidates for the open position of general manager in Orlando is Bucks GM, John Hammond. And I think the reason why it's interesting and kind of what we tried to get into in the press conference with John Hammond was, well, John Hammond is an older guy. Um, he's been doing this for a long time. He's been in the NBA for, I don't even know, three-plus decades at this point. Um, and obviously the Bucs brought in Justin Zanuck last year, and he's the assistant GM, and it's been reported that he is essentially the GM in waiting. Obviously the Bucks have never kind of, uh, I don't even know, clarified that or said like oh yeah he's definitely the gm in waiting but that's always been uh the report and i think that i'll all kind of make sense uh john hammond has just one year left on his deal as general manager that'll be uh this upcoming season and then i guess the the prevailing thought is that after that justin zanuck steps into the lead role as gm and we go from there um but if you're john hammond uh, man the And the point I was trying to get to with him was, do you still want to do this? Like, is being an NBA GM, it like, it's an arduous task. It's not an easy job. It it requires a lot of hours. Like, do you still want to do this? And he said, yeah, like, uh, I'm, I enjoy every minute of this. And I think he would love to continue being an NBA GM. And well, that opportunity might not be here in Milwaukee anymore. And if Orlando has interest, I, I don't think you could blame him or, really be surprised by John Hammond going to Orlando to interview and maybe possibly take the GM position in Orlando because, I mean, that might be his his way forward as an NBA
0: GM. Yeah, it's interesting because I think for a while everyone was so focused on the is Jason Kidd going to become, you know, team president slash whatever and push John Hammond out or, or something like that. That was obviously sort of hanging over. Jason Kidd's arrival and really over maybe the first year or two of of him being here. And so it was interesting last summer where it obviously seemed like Kidd's influence waned and Justin Zanuck comes in after um, you know uh, basically a year without uh, an assistant GM and uh, You know obviously Justin Zanuck was was has been considered kind of an up-and-coming assistant GM And in Utah, he was behind Dennis Lindsay, who's who's younger. And, you know, there was obviously no kind of clear path for him to take the next step and become a a GM in Utah. So I think naturally it was obviously going to be some questions about, well, why would he come to Milwaukee if he didn't think he had a chance to maybe accelerate that timeline or, you know, become have a have a more direct route to to a GM job in Milwaukee? And he has family connections here. His wife's um, a a Wisconsin native, went to UW-Madison. Um, he you know basically w- lived and worked uh, in in Chicago I think most of his uh, professional career before taking the job uh, in Utah so they had some other reasons maybe to come to Milwaukee but obviously a big one was an opportunity to become a GM and yeah it's been kind of interesting because it's just sort of been like hanging out there you know it, it's it's not something that you know has been as as I guess controversial and poked at as uh, as the Jason Kidd stuff was before it um, but it does leave sort of the 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 front office in in an interesting kind of position where there is seemingly a line of succession but it's not really that acknowledged or at least certainly not publicly acknowledged and i think you know certainly there was no um i think when when he, when john hammond was asked about justin zanuck uh, at the press conference and how he was involved in the the draft run-up he kind of kind of deferred it a little bit he just sort of was like yep yeah, he's absolutely involved along with you know and he listed <laughs> off like all the other guys who, who were involved in the draft process so um so anyway, so who, who knows exactly where that is right now. But um, obviously the Bucks have, have made a number of additions to, to the front office in the last year. And, um, you know, it, it certainly does make sense that that would be for the longer term future. And um, again, uh, we talked a fair bit about Jason Kidd and, and where his future in Milwaukee might be or, or how long it might be. Um, and we'll have to see what happens with there. Jason Kidd just entering the first year of a three-year contract extension this coming season, provided he's around. Though, um, so yeah, I don't. I don't think we've clarified much of anything in the in the front office exactly how how sort of everything's going to look. Maybe a year or two from now, that there's still a fair bit that can can change, and we have maybe some guesses as to how it might change. But um, you know, a year ago, Jason John John Hammond was connected with the New Orleans job. There's something like like some lingering rumors that maybe he might be you know a target there but never to the point where i don't think you know it was never like a mark stein type type report so that's interesting and, and the magic seem to be targeting i think it was i think they're technically saying team president i want to say um and i think they're you know it seems like the number one guy is is david griffin of the Cavs, who um you know i think he was also mentioned as a target for the hawks who have sort of demoted effectively mike budenholzer and Wes Wilcox, who is sort of the acting GM uh, under Budenholzer as team president, in the sort of fallout of all the Danny Ferry stuff, uh, they've also been linked with David Griffin. So, um, so I guess those teams may be banking on David Griffin, sort of, I don't know, getting bored with Cleveland and maybe just sort of saying like, oh, I want to start something new. And you know, I don't know if I don't know if he needs more power than he has in Cleveland, but um, certainly some some potential movement. And and who knows, maybe John Hammond um, does get an offer at some point or, or maybe he doesn't, but certainly what he said to you after you asked him, he, he kind of made it clear like he appreciates every uh every opportunity to continue working. He didn't seem, you know, like a guy who wanted to ride off into the sunset here in the next year or two. Um and obviously that he's a he's a lifer. And as we've talked about, he's a survivor, right? I mean, it, it's kind of crazy to Always. think he's it's it's crazy to think he's coming up on, you know, ten years in, in Milwaukee. Um he arrived in two thousand eight. And we're now it's 2017, and, and his job will at least take him through 2018. It looks like so, um, so yeah. interesting how how long he's he's stayed here is through you know difficult times and and now better times and, and ownership changes and coaching changes and um you know I think one thing you can always say about John Hammond is you know he he's a guy that has found ways to work with different people when he's well-respected around the league. And, um, obviously look where the bucks are now with Giannis and, and Chris Middleton and a number of other guys that he's been instrumental in, in landing. So, um, it has not been a, a spotless tenure in Milwaukee, but certainly, uh, if he'd left, you know, next year, for instance, if that was the end of his career in Milwaukee, um, John Hammond can probably leave feeling pretty pretty good about where he where he left this franchise in the grand scheme of things and you know, number getting Giannis at number fifteen, that that is the ultimate trump card in uh, in his t- for his time in Milwaukee and um certainly uh you know a number of other pieces he he obviously had some great foresight in acquiring as well.
1: Yeah, it is kind of funny that as a GM just you make a million moves. Like if you look at John John Hammond's full transaction sheet from two thousand eight, I don't even know. How many moves would be on that? But you make so many, and your kind of reputation, your uh, your ability is can be judged on a single move. And yeah, that that can make a career. Ju- drafting Giannis at 15 and having him turn into the league's best player at some point yeah the you, you you killed it you're a great gm <laughs> it doesn't matter if you screw up a number a number of other trades like you made that move and for that like there's going to be just a certain amount of respect that people are going to have for you and it, they can't really take away from you so um it, it is interesting and yeah it, it's funny too that you said well we don't really know what it looks like going forward but i also think well what does it really look like now uh if justin zanuck is the guy is he getting to have a large say in a lot of these moves is he running most of the draft like you know what i mean like there's just always and it's kind of been a theme through this buck's ownership in really since they've got here and since jason kids got here like every single summer it seems like there's a new rumor a new idea a new something as to who's in charge and how's it all working when in reality they probably all just all work together and they all probably have somewhat similar says and try to figure out what's the best move to make um, at any given time but I don't know it's fascinating that that kind of I don't even know intrigue continues like there's there's always it's seemingly there's always something with the Bucks and ownership and uh, personnel and coaching every summer and it's funny that that too there's a, a real possibility a, a real a real non-zero chance that the Bucks go into next season with a different GM and a different coach like it, that's that seems crazy <laughs> you know what I mean like we're actually at a spot where we think this Bucks team is is able to have expectations and should be able to live up to expectations next year and are moving in the right direction and there's a, a possibility, no matter how slight, that the Bucks don't retain their GM and coach in this offseason.
0: Yeah, and I think if they don't, then I think the the rationale, I think with, with Hammond, obviously it, it may be sort of this transitionary thing of, of trying to move to, um, you know, Zanuck being kind of an up-and-comer and, and assuming he's obviously the person. Uh, and with Kidd, I think, you know, I think for me it does always come back to sort of the idea of, you know, if the Bucks have ambitions of of you know being a championship contender, and obviously they're going to say they do, and you know, I think they legitimately do, especially with the honest now, you can actually have that conversation with a straight face. Um, then I think it is a question of okay, do you have do you have an above average coach? Do you feel like you have a coach that that can get you there? And and obviously that's the big question with Jason Kidd. You know, I mean, I think from a record wise standpoint, he's probably had two years where you know just an aggregate, if you don't look at Sort of what the way he's coached, you would say, "Wow, didn't expect the Bucks to win 41 games two years ago for sure. Didn't expect them to be second-ranked defense two years ago. Um, that was impressive, you know. And then this year, obviously, um, you know, the defense was not there, um, but uh, the offense coming around, and obviously the team kind of figuring things out late in the season to the extent that they were able to win a bunch of games and." win 42 overall despite obviously the injuries that they had with with Middleton and, and Jabari at different points and so it, it would be a gutsy move you know it would definitely be a process over results type move I think um but I think that's why you you know that's that that's how I think you should judge sort of players and, and coaches and GMs um you know you you shouldn't be basing their hires just on well you know a bunch of other good things happened and and they were just sort of <laughs> along for the ride if, if that's yeah. if that's the way you viewed Jason Kidd, and I'm sure there are a lot of people to do. Um, then that might obviously be be a good reason to kind of reevaluate. But I think really with Kidd, I think so much of it's going to come just down to personality, and that's probably the the hardest thing to read, sort of as a as a fan, is just sort of what's going on behind closed doors. And you know, he obviously has a reputation as as a guy who, and I, and I you know, I know I definitely know some people in the organization who, you know, have defended Kidd to to me when I've kind of questioned stuff about him. Others maybe not so much. Um, but, uh, uh, but it's interesting. I mean, if, I think if we see him leave, I think a lot of it would be just his personality and, and some concerns around that, which, you know, would probably wouldn't be surprising given sort of the controversial nature in which he arrived as well. But, um, certainly, uh, players ultimately, it seemed like they did respond to him after almost quitting on him midway through the season. So, yeah. um, I think I think it, all that stuff is just it, it's just such a fascinating situation. I think it, it'd be really interesting to hear sort of the conversations behind closed doors because I'm sure some of it would be the usual stuff we talk about, like rotations and you know, sort of from a philosophical standpoint, what the Bucks try to do, especially probably on that the defensive end, but also just about shooting and you know their offensive sort of philosophy. Um, but I'm sure there's a lot of other pieces to it that that maybe we we would not be so privy to. So anyway. Anyway, we can always follow that rabbit hole as much as we want, but we have other things to talk about. We we certainly could. We certainly
1: could. Um so, I guess one of the things that I guess we just need to keep hammering home, um this entire offseason kind of uh, to me swings on decisions the Bucks make and decisions that players make about whether they want to be in Milwaukee. And the two guys that are kind of at the forefront of that are Tony Snell and Greg Monroe. And one, I guess, let's just start with the easiest idea of them returning them, not returning. And we'll talk about their value and how much you may pay them and how much you want, may want them to be back. So I want to do, I want to do a cap breakdown here, Frank, with very specific terms and and ideas for you, okay? Can you, uh, I'm gonna try okay. to I'm, I'm gonna try to guide us through this. So, let's say Greg Monroe opts out, and the Bucks decide not to make a qualifying offer for Tony Snell, which they would need to do to retain his restricted free agent uh, rights, the, their bird rights. So, to have the, those rights, they decide not to. They don't care about Tony Snell. They don't want Tony Snell back. Again, this is not not true, but those two things happen. How much cap space would the Milwaukee Bucks have this offseason?
0: Well, then I'll ask you one more question. What happens to Spencer Haas? Does Spencer Haas take his player option of $6 yes, million? he's. Okay. I don't
1: think he's good enough to get any other deal. Let's say in all these scenarios, Spencer Hawes keeps... Is $6 million in ops in for next season. Okay.
0: So the way we can kind of break it down most easily is we can look at sort of, let's start with the guaranteed money the Bucks have on the books. And for that, they have nine players who have guaranteed contracts. They also have Larry Sanders uh, deadweight $1.9 million. They're going to be paying forever, basically, <laughs> basically for lack of a better term. Um, and those numbers add up to about $82.6 million. So, um, you know, unfortunately, even though Giannis is the only guy making over twenty million, he's at twenty two point four next year. Um, it still adds up to a ton of money. So you're basically, at, you know, eighty three million. You add another two million for your first round pick. That takes you to let's say eighty five million, and you have a cap of hundred and one million dollars, right? So, unfortunately, I'm not even counting Spencer Haas yet. I've got maybe sixteen million in cap space without Greg Monroe, without Tony Snell. I'm assuming they're gone forever. I'm also not counting Gary Payton II, who is a non-guaranteed deal of, I think, $1.3 million next year. Um, His quote-unquote multi-year deal he signed right at the end of the season. That's just Mm -hmm. non-guaranteed through next year, so you can basically not consider him in any of these numbers. Um, So it's about $60 million if Haas isn't there. If Haas is there, you drop it down to maybe $10 million in cap space. And the reason why that is so little, you might say, well, $10 million, that's a lot of money, is that you would have 8.4 million in mid-level money if you basically operated over the cap so i'm not considering the mid-level exception and the biannual exception and the trade exceptions the bucks have in all these numbers, right? So if it, basically all those numbers count against your salary cap until you renounce them, and you don't have—I mean, right now you don't have to do anything, right? You you not only have to do any of those things when you actually wanted to go sign somebody. So if the Bucks on July first actually wanted to sign somebody and they absolutely needed ten million dollars, and Greg Monroe had opted out, and let's say Spencer Hawes had um, taken his player option, they could rescind their tra- their their uh, their offer to Tony Snell, their qualifying offer to clear clear his cap hold which is about six million dollars um they could go out and spend 10 million dollars but they also have to renounce their biannual exception their trade their multiple trade exceptions and then they could go spend 10 million dollars but alternatively you could actually keep all those trade exceptions keep your mid-level exception that would take you over the cap effectively because those count until you renounce them Mm -hmm. and then you'd have 8.4 million in a mid-level exception and you'd also have multiple trade exceptions with you know probably aren't going to be used used for anything really productive but you could you know acquire a random guy who you know is worth a few million dollars um in exchange for for the some of these trade exceptions that that the bucks have they've got uh, a five million dollar trade exception from the roy hibbert trade when they just gave up gave him up for nothing um and they've got a couple others the the trade exception from the the Beasley trades 1.7 million you know and they got a couple other small ones 1.1 or eight, 8 1.1 million 800,000 so I mean those aren't really that that useful and really the Hibbert one's the only potentially useful one and the biennial's worth like I think like three three million dollars this year something something on that or so that
1: seems the most unlikely of any of the Bucs offseason scenarios with those two players
0: right yeah I mean I think there's a good chance that Monroe could opt out yes um and, and if he does, it, it certainly seemed like if he opted out from John Hammond's comments the other day, that like if he opts out, he's probably just gone. Um, and, and if he opts out, so keep in mind, so Greg Monroe is not a full bird free agent. Like, they can't sign, they could not, his max would be, I think, like $30 million, which obviously he's not going to get. But, because he's only been at the Bucks for two years on this, new, on this contract he signed, they could not go and, and give him $30 million. Another team theoretically could, and they wouldn't be able to offer the same amount, um, but because he is an early bird free agent, they could offer him essentially the same or a little bit more money than he already got, got last year, which is a lot of money um, and is more money than you probably would need to give Greg Monroe to retain him. So effectively, they can go over the cap to re-sign him, but they can't technically give him, you know, he's not like a true full full bird free agent. So just, just some, kind of some random minutia, but if they did want to re-sign him, he would count, uh, I think, 22, 23 million against the cap. So... Basically, if you want to bring back Greg Monroe, you're not doing anything in free agency other than signing somebody with the mid-level of 8.4 plus you know, you got this $3.3 million. I think think that's the the biennial this year. Um, So basically, you don't have much of any flexibility if if Greg Monroe leaves. But you don't have a ton of flexibility even – or sorry, if if Greg Monroe stays or you want to keep him, you don't have really any flexibility other than the mid-level. And if he leaves, you don't really have that much more as you were kind of alluding to. You could stretch – Uh, Spencer Hawes and you could spread his six million dollars you owe him if he takes his player option over three years in which case um, you know, basically, you could have, let's say, 14 million in cap space. Even if he opted in, you'd still owe him that money over three years. But he would only count two million this year. But that might be one way where, where you could open up 14 million in cap space. But I think the big thing here is not just Greg Monroe, but you know, the Bucks don't want to give away Tony Snell, right? They do not They don't want to let Tony Snell walk, um, which is why that it's probably so unlikely, as you were saying, that that scenario would play out the way yeah, the way described.
1: Okay, so. I think that is one thing that I think is really important for people to realize because I think there's kind of this misperception that okay, Greg Monroe would get paid eighteen million dollars next year if he opts in. If the Bucks, if he doesn't opt in, that gives the Bucks eighteen million. Like I think that's the very binary way people view it, and that's not at all the case. No, correct. and I just think there's. A major misconception where it's like, well, if they don't spend the eighteen million on Greg Monroe, they can go spend that eighteen million on other random player. They could try to get George Hill for eighteen million or whatever. But that's not the case. Like the Bucks would not have that same amount of cap room. The Bucks wouldn't really have any cap room. And I think like that's just something over and over until free agent until the free agent period actually occurs. Like I feel like we just need to. Uh, again, it's going to be annoying for us, but I feel like we need to talk about it all the time so people actually understand and realize that essentially, even in the scenario where the bucks don't retain any of their free agents again, which seems unlikely with as much as they want Tony Snell, if Spencer Hawes opts out, if all these things happen, the bucks still don't have really any cap room to make a significant play in free agency so um I just wanted to make that clear. So now let's go through some other scenarios. So let's say uh, Greg Monroe opts out, and they keep that that qualifying offer of for Snell. What is the qualifying offer? That's like four.
0: It's like the qual. So the qualifying offer is four point six, but it almost doesn't even matter what it is. The the thing that's going to count against the cap is a five point nine million dollar hold. So basically, four point six. That's a Offer that means that Tony Snell can just take that if he wants it and he can still play for one year and then become an unrestricted free agent. But it sort of just is a placeholder. And the interesting thing, though, is that it's actually not what counts against the cap sort of until he signs elsewhere or, or with the Bucks. He actually will count five point nine million against the cap for for sort of cap space purposes so i wouldn't focus on the qualifying offer so much as the 5.9 because tony snell will get offered certainly more much more than that by the bucks over a multi-year he could go get more than that i'm sure in a restricted free agent offer sheet so ignore the 4.6 that's just sort of like bookkeeping the bucks have to do
1: so the 5.9 that takes their cap space again monroe opts out cap hold of 5.9 haws opts in that puts the Bucks' cap space again at like three or four. And again, with all of the exceptions, with all the things you can do by going over the cap, ultimately like that is probably not an ideal scenario for the Milwaukee Bucks,
0: right? I, w- I would say that is probably a much more likely scenario that Spencer Haas could opt in. And then it'd be interesting to see if they ultimately would stretch him. So open up an additional 4 million in cap space just to basically create some flexibility. But to be honest, I, I, I don't I don't know I mean, it's it's an interesting situation if they do lose Greg Monroe do they maybe just keep Spencer Hawes around just as depth um, yeah especially if potentially they want to get rid of John Henson maybe and free up some more space that way um, but it is an interesting situation because I think especially. I think the interesting kind of backdrop to all this and sort of the elephant in the room is something we talked about in the last podcast, which is what is Jabari Parker's future in Milwaukee? And he has a $20 million cap hold in 2018, which, you know, again, at this point is kind of an abstract thing because who mm-hmm. knows what might happen with him. Um, but if you kind of look at it in 2018 – if you were, let's just say you were to re-sign Greg Monroe to um, to a, a, another contract. Let's just say you were able to sign him for you know fifteen million a year or something like that, right? Jabari Parker plus all the guy guarantee contracts you have right now. If Jabari Parker got twenty million dollars, you gave Greg Monroe a new fifteen million dollar you deal. Your deal. Let's say you gave Tony Snell twelve million a year, right? And we'll we'll get into what Tony Snell might make, but let's just say twelve million a year. If you kind of add up everything on the Bucks roster right now, Oh, don't tell us the
1: tax. Is that already the tax? Yeah,
0: exactly. Plus plus Jabari Parker getting twenty million a year, plus Greg Monroe getting fifteen a year, plus Tony Snell getting twelve. You're over the tax by these numbers put at like five million, and I'm including first round picks this year, next year, just sort of placeholder for next year. So I think that's probably a big reason why maybe there wouldn't be that much enthusiasm for, for Greg Monroe coming back. Because, and again, you know, in this scenario as well, I'm assuming John Henson's still around, and let's be honest, I mean, if you've got Greg Monroe back at $15 million a year, you're probably doing a, whatever you can to to ditch Henson's contract, mm-hmm. because again, he's the obvious guy to get rid of with Thonmaker and, and Greg Monroe on the roster. But either way, it just sort of shows you how little margin you have, because we're not talking about having added, you know, any point guards to the roster, or any other guards to the roster, other than basically what you have right now. So, um, so I, I think effectively... The way I look at it, I think in a lot of ways, what happens with Greg Monroe, if, if Greg Monroe opts out, or, or even if he opts in and then what, they have to make a decision next summer, that might be in many ways sort of more ideal because of the Parker ambiguity and uncertainty right now. Um, I think effectively a year from now, they might sort of be having to decide between Jabari Parker and Greg Monroe from a financial standpoint, because you're going to have to make a Snell decision this summer, and it seems likely that they would keep him. Um And so, you know, and I think stylistically as well, Jabari Parker and Greg Monroe, I mean, Monroe, I think, defended at a much higher level this year. They defended fine with him on the court this year. But from a practical standpoint, you're still trying to scheme around Greg Monroe in a lot of ways. And he's still a guy who could become. You know, played off the court in a playoff series down the road when you're hopefully contending for more than just a first round win. Yeah, and Jabari Parker is is an even worse defender than Greg is. Granted, he doesn't play as sort of critical a position as Greg does defensively, um, but I think it does put the Bucks in an interesting, interesting situation because maybe they decide that you know what, Jabari's the the one kind of substandard defender we want to have to sort of plan around and who knows if Jabari Parker you know we don't know if he's going to be a 35 minute per game guy moving forward is he be a guy who eventually comes off the bench um he could ultimately sort of sort of fill maybe some of the role that that Greg Monroe has has filled this year even if you know they're obviously very different types of players
1: I guess one thing I've sort of started to feel as I look at this summer and next summer is that I think there's always kind of the the fear as a fan of a franchise that you're going to fall too much in love with your own players, re-sign them for too much money, and then kind of like cap yourself out. And I think we've seen a number of teams do that that are just happy to be a good team, and you know what? We're winning 40 games a year, um, and we're maybe getting all the way up to 50, like that's really good. Like It's good to have a good team, and people always want to strive for something more. But in the Bucs situation, I don't even know that re-signing those guys or having those guys come back, and I'm talking about Snell, Monroe, and maybe an extension for Parker this summer. With those three guys, like to me, with the way that their cap is already formed, for the next two years, that's the only way that they can get assets to me. It, like, if you, can, if you can sign Snell for a somewhat reasonable contract, like, that could be an asset that whether or not you like Tony Snell and keep him for the entirety of that contract, like, that could be something that you can move. If you sign Jabari Parker to an affordable type deal this summer, he comes back totally healthy, he's scoring 20 points again. Whether or not you like him going all the way forward, if he plays well, that's an asset that you've created. Greg Monroe, if he comes back and he's signed at a reasonable number, and again, if he just opts in, it's going to be 18, and I don't think you could trade him until December or January, and then you're only going to trade him for half the season, so there's probably not much there. But if ultimately he decides to sign for a longer-term period and it's an affordable deal, like you've created an asset there. And I don't know, like it's just such a strange balance for this team for further capping themselves out by signing players that maybe might not fit or maybe not might not take you to the next level but also just letting those players leave and then essentially having a team devoid of assets because people keep asking me during this offseason well is would john hammond think about trading up like would they trade up to try to go get one of those point cards and i keep thinking who are you trading like, like, I, don't, I don't understand how you're getting a higher draft pick in this draft because you're first in Mirza Toledovic ain't getting it done. You're first in John Henson isn't getting it done. You're first in Matthew vadova isn't getting it done. So unless you're doing three-player-for-three-player three swaps, which we've seen John Hammond do around draft time and ultimately move a pick up or down a little bit, we've seen him make that type of move. Like I just don't see... A ton of assets on this roster and the things that are assets you definitely don't want to move <laughs> like you don't want to move Giannis you don't want to move Chris Middleton because he's still signed to a, a very good deal you don't want to move Malcolm Brogdon because he's on a rookie contract you don't want to move Thon Makers. so I don't know it's just such a strange spot because as a fan you totally fear the idea of overpaying your own guys, trying to keep something together and hold it together, even though it's not good enough for a championship, but then also ultimately just losing assets and not having anything that, to me, looks all that attractive to other teams going forward. I don't, I don't know. It's a To me, it's a, it's a super fascinating spot for this team to be in.
0: Yeah, and I, I would view sort of from a value perspective, like Parker and Monroe, I, I think... It, like we saw with Greg Monroe, I mean, he produced last year and it seemed like nobody wanted him. And, and you know, like we talked about the, the trade rumors that were around him for, for how, for however long. And, you know, again, I don't know how much the bucks really shopped him leading up to this trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, but we talked a fair bit about how it was going to be difficult to get any value for him, given he's an expiring contract and he makes a lot of money and it's hard to kind of make salaries match, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I, to be honest, I'm kind of resigned to the fact that that Greg Monroe is not a guy that, that you're going to resign or or he'll opt in or whatever, and that you're ever going to trade him for probably much of value. Yeah. Um, and part of that is Greg Monroe's kind of being Greg Monroe being a guy that just isn't sort of the prototypical, you know, defensive center in the modern NBA like he's. You know, he does things defensively that that kind of, I think, mirror some of the short or sorry, mass, some of the shortcomings. And, you know, he was effective for for large portions of the season defensively as well as offensively. But um, but I, I think if he's back, you just assume that he's on this team. And if you have to move him, you're not going to get much of value. I think with Jabari as well, I I think Jabari's outcome is. You know, and again, this isn't to say that like, oh, he's either going to be a you know a bust or he's going to be awesome. Like I, I, think there's a lot of there's a big spectrum of of his you know sort of production uh, that could come out um, depending on how he comes back from the knee injury and how he evolves as a player. But yeah. I don't think I don't think there's a deal that you could get him to sign this summer that would make him at this great asset. Whereas you know, if you went to restricted free agency and you had to match a max offer sheet, that oh at that price he'd be you know, a neutral or bad asset, but if you had gotten him for, you know, 20 million a year, he's, he's great. And if you got him for 25, he's bad. You know, like I, I think he's either going to be an asset because he turns out to be a good player or he doesn't. And, um, and so I, I don't know if like this summer necessarily, I mean, it it matters in the sense that what you get, what, if you were to resign him, obviously the numbers going to matter a lot, but I don't think he's going to take, you know, $10 $10 million a year or something like that, I think he's a guy who will just play it out and, and see what he can get because he knows that if he goes to a restricted free agency, he can get more than that, I think. Um, Give me a number. So, what number would
1: you consider him to be a strong asset?
0: Um, well, I'll say this. I don't think he's an asset, period, until he comes back from a second ACL and actually looks kind of like the player he was. Um, so I don't think he... like. I don't know what you could trade him for right now. I'm sure there are some teams that would give you something of value for him, but I don't think you're, you know, you're not dealing from a position of strength and giving him a a contract on top of that, of any value, I don't know if that, like, you know, makes him any more valuable because you are going to control. If you trade him, he's going to be under. You know, he's going to be a stricter free agent anyway. So it's not like if you traded him that the team would would not be able to control him if he wasn't. You know, extended. So I don't think extending him really changes his asset value that much. If that makes sense, um I think it's really just going to be all driven by how well he plays once he actually comes back.
1: Okay, but that's where that's what I am asking you. Like after all that happens, he's a good player when he comes back. At what number is he an asset? Knowing the things that you know about Jabari Parker, that he's ultimately probably going to be a, I don't know, somewhat inefficient, but still guy that can get you twenty points a night, and is probably going to be bad defensively. Like, is there what would be the number that that's actually a good asset?
0: Well, first off, I mean he was efficient this year. I mean he wasn't in a, I don't think he'll be if he, if he can kind of be what what he what he is. Um, you know, if if he just is what he was. I mean he was fifty six percent true shooting this year, so he was efficient yeah. as a scorer um and obviously he stretched out his range which was critical right and we do, we kind of forget about that a lot because you know we're too focused on just the crappiness of him getting hurt um yeah. but uh if he's if he's sort of a you know 20 point per game empty calories kind of score who doesn't defend at a high level um I, I think you maybe have another couple years before his his value kind of goes down significantly so um I I don't foresee him, I could not see him signing a long-term, you know, a a, a rookie extension. I just, I I don't think they'd even have a conversation for, I don't know, less than 15, 16, 17 million starting salary. I just feel like they would say, no, we think we're going to be able to come back and he'll be fine and he can get paid more. Um, And I think at something like 20, if he came back and sort of picked up where he left off, I think he could still be certainly an asset for another year or two. Um, But if he never kind of figured it out defensively from there, then I think he would probably pretty quickly become a guy that, you know, maybe teams would say, "Eh, you know what, we kind of get what he is. And, you know, even if he was only in his, you know, mid 20s at that point, um, I I think it becomes harder to kind of get big value for him, let's say. Um, And that's what's so hard about the injury, because we're still in the phase where if Jabari Parker was healthy, I think, There would still be a lot of teams that would view him as a really valuable asset, just because he's so young and he has such so much sort of innate talent as a scorer, and maybe he can figure the rest of the stuff out. Interesting. Okay. Um, Do you disagree? What What is? I mean, is there a number that you would say this summer, like a reasonable number that you would say? um, You know, you would you you think that that there could be some middle ground for for both the bucks and Jabari Parker to, to sign something this summer I mean the other option is go shorter right like you yeah know, don't don't do four years but do something shorter and then if he's you know if he's great then he can go up back out on a free agency and and get paid more
1: I feel like 18 is a number that you could discuss that I think I don't think either side is offended um, and, and again the Parker may ultimately decide that no I'm going to be worth way more than that when I come back but I, I feel like 18 is a number that with the Bucks you're getting something out of it. like 18 was what that's what Alan Crab signed for last year and again last year was funny money I understand got it but still eight, <laughs> 18 uh for a guy like Parker that could do those things like a- again the Bucks are taking on some risk and there's there's really no doubt about that and the safer play is undoubtedly to wait and then just take him in restricted free agency next year. Um, but I don't know. I just, I just see the way that the Warriors were built, that you get such a good player in Steph Curry at such a significant discount. And again, there's a ton of questions about whether or not Jabari Parker is a is ultimately. I don't know a top. 50 player a top 30 player a top 20 we don't we don't know where he ends up being but i just know that signing someone that can bring large like if, if you can sign someone that brings a lot of value for considerably less than they should be signed like that helps you build a team like that it's the biggest thing that you can do in the modern nba is essentially steal a guy at a at a very cheap contract. And I think the Bucks have kind of done that to this point. Um Middleton they did a nice job with that. Giannis him at not the max is crazy. And again it's only was it eight to ten million dollars uh that they end up saving. But still that's that's something. And then if you could steal, I don't know, twenty five, thirty million dollars over a four year period from from Parker by getting him at eighteen and maybe is it yeah I think it's what, thirty? Because it would be one fourteen, and that would only be seventy eight or something like that. I'm bad at math, sorry. Um, But if if you can steal some of that money, like I think that allows you to have. I, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Like it gives you more money to spend other places. You can splurge for a free agent that might ultimately not be. Totally worth 13 million, but everyone else is giving them 11 million. Like, because that's what the Warriors did with the Like, they spent a little bit more than these other teams could do, brought them in, and it ended up being a great fit. And I don't know. I think it, it just seems to me like it's an advantage that you could find. Um, but again, it, there is inherent risk in that decision. Um, and uh, again, I totally understand that the safest play is definitely to wait until restricted free agency. But I don't know. I, I'd i be lying if I said I'm not totally allured by the fact that you could try to get a quality player for less than they deserve to be paid.
0: Yeah, I think one of the really interesting questions is, you know, is just how, how you know, because cause we're talking about Jabari in, in this these terms of that, that are assuming whether he's getting paid 18, 20, 25, 27, whatever the kind of average is that he would get paid, you know, all of these numbers assume he is a really, really good player who helps you in basketball games. And I yeah. think the the big question for me is, you know, not, um, not whether you can get him for $5 million less per year or something like that, but whether you would want him at either number in the grand scheme mm-hmm. of. You know, constructing a roster that's going to be hopefully contending for, you know, the Eastern Conference and and hopefully a championship at some point. Right. And and so there's a lot of a lot of, you know, risk. And we talked a bit about, you know, how the Bucks needed Thon Maker to be really good, um, you know, and and not maybe a superstar. But but given where they were picking, given the num- the, the lack of and, and this gets to what you were saying when you were saying the Bucks don't really have like obvious guys you know, they, like spare parts that like, you know, nickels and dimes that you could potentially, you know, ha- be v- worth something to somebody mm-hmm. to go to go trade up for. Right. And, and part of it's because nobody wants to trade Thon. Nobody wants to trade Brogdon. And I get that. Um, but in terms of like moving up in a draft, but, you know, you needed to hit on both of those picks last year to even have a couple guys that are on rookie <laughs> contracts that that yeah. are actually worth a damn. Right. That actually yeah. have have real asset value because you go up and down the Bucks roster right now. You know, who is a young player on his first contract that that you would potentially, you know, be be worth somebody wanting to acquire? And the only guys are the two guys they picked last year in Rashad Vaughn because Johnny O'Brien's gone. Damian Inglis is gone. You know, all these guys, yep. you know, all these sort of guys that were around before um, are are gone and and didn't pan out. So it is it was essential that that those guys, you know, work out to varying degrees with with Thon and, and Malcolm and, that, again, that's why I think it's also pretty important that they get a guy in this draft who, you know, maybe he's not going to be a starter, maybe he's not going to be a great player, but but have somebody who's worth something with and has some upside, you know, at least has some upside you can pedal if you have to make a move down the road. So, um, so yeah, it, it's interesting, but it does leave the Bucks in an interesting spot. And I mean, again, it's not to say, like, oh, the Bucks don't have assets that, you know, they're they're in this really bad spot. I mean, they obviously have assets. And the thing is, they have assets they don't want to trade. That's, that's always nice, <laughs> sure, right? Yes. Giannis, Chris. Thon in particular, um, those three I think are pretty clearly you know pieces of the core and yeah. and, and long term pieces, and they have other guys that they want to move. But um, you know certainly in in the background of all these discussions, I think obviously the the value of moving Henson Toledovich or or Vadova Who I mean, I don't think they want you know. You hear the way they talk, Kid and Ham, and Hammond both talk about Delavadova and what he means sort of from a locker room tangible's <laughs> perspective. And uh,
1: honestly, I I always thought it was more Kid, but man. When when Hammond went as far as he did uh, during that that postseason interview, exit interview kind of thing, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, like I don't know. Like it, to me, it, for some reason, in my mind I was connected Delhi with Kid and just thought that you know what, like Kid is really about those intangible things and the leadership and the point guard position. But
0: man, it, it sounded like John was thinking the exact same thing. So let me let me throw something at you. So. Um, and and Teletovic, Teletovic is maybe the most obvious guy. You know, maybe Telet, You know, there, I think there would be some potential market for Teletovic because again, he's a shooter. He's shot wherever he's been. He wasn't great last year, but um, you know, he the Bucks were really good when he was on the court. Um, and now that they they can't, they don't have any use for him. Um, but he has two years left on his on his deal. Um, Henson, I have no idea. No, I mean they traded Miles Plumley for basically nothing, so presumably. John John Hammond could figure out a way to to do the same with John Henson, um, but trading either of those guys, you know, would would certainly alleviate a lot of the, the the luxury tax concerns that that we mentioned the Bucks potentially having next year. And certainly, again, if you if Monroe opts in, then I think dealing Henson makes even more sense because you know, again, otherwise you you have this big logjam and and maybe you just keep Haws at that point just because um, you know you want a, a third center on the roster. But um, but I think it's it's a really interesting thing. So so let me ask you so. If you were going to put on your your you know your prognosticator's hat, what do you think is most likely to happen with these guys? But and let's talk about we were talking we've been talking about Greg Monroe and Tony Snell. They're they're probably the key guys, obviously, this summer. What would you predict is is going to happen with those two guys?
1: What would I predict is going to happen with those two guys? Wow, that's a great question. It's such a great question that I think I'm going to wait 24 hours to answer it. That's right, you just got hit with a locked-on bucks cliffhanger. We just did that to you. I don't really feel great about it, but this has turned into a very long podcast because it's a very good discussion. So we'll get to the second part of this discussion tomorrow, Um, and in that part we're going to talk about Greg Monroe and Tony Snell. Kind of what we teased at the start of this episode, but we got into a bunch of other just interesting things and... Yeah, we did not foresee this happening, but it did, and yeah. So, we'll talk tomorrow a little bit about Greg Monroe, Tony Snell, and what we think is going to happen with each of those two players this offseason. So, please join us for that tomorrow. For Frank Mann. this has been Eric Name. This has been Lockdown Bucks, and we will talk to you tomorrow.